Welcome to Keep You 100 Radio. I'm your host, Felicity Pointer, type 1 diabetic, certified health coach, personal trainer, and founder of Needles and Spoons Health and Wellness. Inside this podcast, you'll find the real and raw conversations around diabetes management, including the lessons that we don't learn in our endos office, my best tips and trainings, and conversations from the experts that I trust inside the community so that you can create more predictability in your diabetes management and feel empowered while doing so. Let's dive in. So I've been living with type 1 diabetes for eight years, and of those eight years, I've been on an insulin pump for seven and a half. That means I've gone through 912 site changes, and that's not even counting my continuous glucose monitor. If you're living with diabetes, then you know that these diabetes devices are precious, and when we're just trying to do the things that we love, like being active, hanging out with our friends, traveling, we literally do not have time for our devices coming off and then dealing with insurance on top of that to deal with replacements. That is why I'm so happy that I found Syngrip, my favorite diabetes patch company, three years ago. Before finding them, my devices used to always knock off on doorways or sweat off after a workout. But since finding them, I can honestly say that I can go to the gym four days a week, sweat it up in hot yoga, go to the beach, and travel without having to worry about anything happening to my devices. As a type 1 diabetic who wants to make the most out of these experiences, I can't tell you how comforting it is to know that I have one less thing to worry about. Whether you're on an insulin pump or a continuous glucose monitor, you can try out SkinGrip at SkinGrip.com and save on your order by using the code LISSIE, L-I-S-S-I-E, at checkout. Now let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Keep 100 Radio. I am super excited for this one because we have a leader in the nutrition and diabetes space. We have Mary Ellen Phipps from Milk and Honey Nutrition joining us. She is a cookbook author and registered dietitian behind Milk and Honey Nutrition, and she's been living with type 1 diabetes since she was five years old. She is the author of the Easy Diabetes Cookbook and the Easy Diabetes Desserts Cookbook. Mary Ellen is a contributing writer, recipe developer, and content expert for several leading health and wellness organizations. You can find her frequently on local Houston area TV stations, educating audiences on food, nutrition, and diabetes. Thank you so much for coming on Keep 100 Radio. I'm, I'm just so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to chat and um, talk all things living with diabetes. Yeah, the best conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about you and just uh, in case anybody hasn't run across your profile yet, just yeah, sharing a little bit more, more about you and your journey? Yeah. So I, like you said, I'm milk and honey nutrition uh, on my blog and on Instagram and diabetes nutritionist over on TikTok. And I just kind of love showing people with uh, diabetes that life doesn't have to suck and you can still eat really awesome food. Uh, so like you said, I was diagnosed when I was five. Um, I've been living with it for over 30 years. Let everybody do their own math there. And um, yeah, it's kind of all I've ever known. And I also have several family members who have type one. And so we're just kind of this like buzzes and alarm and alert type kind of family that walks around. Uh, But yeah, one thing I realized, like, um, I think I was unfortunately the pretty typical um, teenager that grew up with type one in that early 2000s era and found myself with some really disordered eating habits uh, and kind of came out of college with this realization that life doesn't have to be this way and kind of got this desire to really work with people to understand how to make food work for you and not the other way around. I think that's so important because I was diagnosed when I was 19. So I had known kind of life before and I was a gymnast. So I would eat like, you know, those big spaghetti dinners before all of my meats and everything. So being diagnosed with diabetes and being told, Hey, you have to eat kind of low carb. Now I was like, 
this is not going to work for me. <laughs> like I, yeah. that was the biggest piece. I think that was really kind of life-changing it was with the, the relationship with food aspect. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit more about your diagnosis and kind of being diagnosed at such, such young age, but having family behind you and what that experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. So my mom has type one, uh, her sister, my aunt has type one. Uh, and then, uh, I'll, I'll talk about them first. So my mom was actually diagnosed. She was average, normal, healthy woman, uh, got pregnant with me and had no risk factors for gestational diabetes, but pretty quickly they were like, something's off diagnosed her with gestational diabetes. She immediately needed insulin. Um, you can probably guess where this is going. Uh, the, for whatever reason, the stressor of pregnancy on her body allowed her to develop type one. And after she had me, um, I was born totally normal and healthy. Uh, she had said she had seen all these advertisements. I guess Dairy Queen had just come out with the blizzard uh, back, back in the eighties. And she asked my dad, she was like, go get me one of those. I want one. Like she'd like not been able to have anything her whole pregnancy. She ate it. Blood sugar shot up to like 500 or something. And they were like, yeah, this is, this is type one. So fast forward a little bit. I was about to enter kindergarten and she noticed like all the typical signs in it. Like I was losing weight. I was wetting the bed again. I was all of a sudden, like for young girls, we know when yeast infections start to show up, there's usually something with the immune system happening, all of those things. So she kind of like called the pediatrician and was like, Hey, I think this is what's going on. And they kind of blew her off and she's like true mama bear that she is. She marched me up there, tested my blood sugar. And then I was in, um, was diagnosed in Fort Worth at Cook Children's for, I think I was in the hospital for like five or six days. Uh, and just kind of went from there. But the, for me, like diabetes was normal. Like mom had it. It's all I'd ever known. Uh, and so I had this very, if you have to look at the right side, like this very blessed experience with it, um, when that, and then we have fast forward, we have, uh, my mom has another sister, uh, her, her older sister has type one was actually diagnosed before her, but then they have another sister who ended up marrying a guy who has type one. And so, oh yeah. my gosh. And then our most recent was my nephew, my brother. So my brother never developed type one, but his youngest little boy was diagnosed at two uh, a couple years ago. So wow. like I said, we just come with a lot of alerts and alarms. Yeah. I mean, again, if you are looking at the bright side, at least it's, it's comfortable yeah. knowing that, or it's nice knowing that they have, like you have other people with it. It's, it's nice to know other people who get it and it's not as much of an adjustment. I mean, it's always an adjustment, but. Right. But it, it makes it more livable. And whether you have, whether you have family or you have to seek someone out in your life who also has it, I think that piece of living with diabetes is so crucial to walk alongside people who are doing the same thing you are. Yeah. Always. I think my first dose, dose quote unquote of in like meeting other people or even kind of searching for other people that had diabetes. I was on YouTube kind of like, okay, what can I find out? Right. First person who pops up was Nick Jonas, who is like the most unrelatable type one diabetic ever. I mean, <laughs> yeah. more power to him, but like, I was like, I can't right. relate to you. And then finally I got to go to um, one of the connected emotions, adult uh -huh. diabetes camps. And I was like, wow, this is so cool just to have other people who understand it to be woken up by alarm that's not yours i mean yep. not the coolest thing in the world but it was like oh i don't have to feel bad for my alarm yeah. going off it was just really nice yeah. um so is that what got you like so did you always kind of know i want to work with other people with diabetes or were you somebody who was like diabetes it's not something i want to work in the field well in? 
So I, growing up, my grandmother, my dad's mom, she was this world renowned, like baker and cook and like really took it upon herself to teach me like, like this concept of like, we're going to figure out a way to make this work for you. Like, we're going to, we're going to do it. And like, she taught me the basics of cooking and baking and really kind of helped spur that fire to be like, okay, maybe I can't have like your traditional pound cake anytime I want and as much as I want but there's a way that I can still enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, and so that was always in me. Like I said, I came up through high school with some pretty disordered eating and honestly wanted to be a dietitian for all the wrong reasons uh, that a lot of us went into schooling um, of like looking at like weight loss and like restrictive eating and all of that. Um, but then slowly through college and in grad school um, to like actually doing my dietetic internship, realized like, no, I've lost my love for food. Like I really love food. I didn't know I was going to go into helping people with diabetes, but I realized like a lot of my preceptors, um, focused more on the fact that I had diabetes and wanted me to help with the diabetes patients. Cause I could relate. Uh, and so I did my first job out of school was as a diabetes educator at like a local endocrinology clinic. And I hated it. It was just like, I'd go, I'd get home from work and like want to throw my pump against the wall. Like it was just too much. And so I transitioned and did corporate wellness for a long time. Uh, and then before I had my kids and um, had my babies, stayed home for a little bit and just got that itch. Like I wanted, I wanted to do something else. And so started milk and honey nutrition originally to be a private practice, um, but then really quickly realized how many more people and quite honestly, like the efficiency and like what I could do to earn an income for my family with this online presence and having a blog and doing media requests and stuff like that. Um, and so it kind of nothing, I feel like nothing was intentional, but it all just kind of fell into place. Uh, I feel like that's kind of how life goes. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of had to come to terms with this idea of like, when I first started this whole online thing, I didn't want to talk about the fact that I had type one, it was just general nutrition. Like to me, that was like crossing a line until I realized like, that's why people were interested. Like they wanted, they like that I'm a dietitian. Yes. But they really just want to relate to someone who gets what it's like to live with diabetes, whether it's type one or type two or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that personal connection is critical. Absolutely. And there, it's so different than what you find in your doctor's office too, because, you know, you can go and meet with a dietitian who specializes in diabetes and they're fantastic, you know, but it's always kind of like basic information, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I got the food pyramid. I was told, you know, incorporate some protein, eat lower carb is all very generic. And I feel like yeah. once you step into the online space, it just opens up more opportunity. Like you get to see what other people are actually doing. I'm sure it's very it's very motivating, at least from, you know, I'm a follower of yours. It's, it's always so cool to see you incorporating more foods than the traditional, okay, restrict, follow a specific yeah. diet. So I feel like whenever, like you didn't want to work directly with people with diabetes, but at the same time, a lot of people could probably relate to your journey of wanting to make foods work for them. Yeah. And I think it was just like, I didn't want to be in that, like in the nitty gritty of clinical care. Mm -hmm. Um, that was like a boundary for me that I shouldn't have crossed, but like, yeah, getting to share the, the everyday life of like, okay, how do we make pizza work? How do we make pasta work? Like, how do we get through the holidays and still enjoy ourselves, but don't skyrocket to 300 every day kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a fine balance, but I think if you find the right professionals to either listen to or work with mm -hmm. it, that makes all the difference. How did that go with your grandmother of like, 
you know, because I feel like now we have so many different things to incorporate at the grocery store, different products, but how did that, Mm -hmm. like, how was that process of finding, okay, how can I make this work in my family setting uh, with these different recipes? Yeah. Or she like, she was big on like teaching me how to make things and we'd try like cutting back on sugar or like she taught me how to, I still maintain one of the most diabetes friendly traditional desserts that you can do is cheesecake because it's got protein. It's got fat. And if you put some stuff in the crust, like you can add some fiber in there. And she taught me how to do cheesecake. And so we figured out how to play around with that recipe. Uh, and yeah, it was a really, uh, it was just, I have a lot of fun memories with her, like us, like brainstorming, like, okay, how can we change this? How can we do this? Um, we'd mark up cookbooks and things like that. So that is so cool. I love that approach. When I was diagnosed, like (laughs) God bless her heart, but my aunt that first, I think it was that first Christmas, we go to her house every year and she came out with a veggie plate and she's like, I got this just for you <laughs> when everybody else is eating like the pasta and, you know, the good stuff. I'm like, okay, like, is this you. what this looks like now? Like, you know, so vulnerable at the time. It's like, uh. yeah. um, but I really love that approach. So now, you know, okay. So let me just ask you, where does the name milk and honey come from um, in your company name? Yeah. So I'm actually, um, I'm a Christian. And so like, grew up in a Christian family. And there's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about this land flowing with milk and honey. And I love the image that that creates. And so even if you don't share the same faith, it's this idea of like, it's this promised land. It's this reward. It's this thing to look forward to. It's not to be feared. It's not to be judged by. It's not to be restricted. It's something to really like work towards and love and enjoy and be happy about and celebrate. And I just loved that imagery of it. And I think at the time, like, let's be honest too, the phrase milk and honey was very trendy as well. So I was like, oh, this is the best of both worlds. Perfect. There we go. I love that. I love when there's meaning behind it too. That's really uh, sentimental. Um, So now you have, you have two cookbooks out. So you have your Easy Diabetes Cookbook, and then now you have your Easy Diabetes Dessert Cookbook. What was the inspiration behind coming up with those? Yeah, so uh, my publisher actually found me and was like, basically, like needed to fill a void for um, a diabetes cookbook in their repertoire, if you will. And so we kind of brainstormed like the theme and the general approach of the easy diabetes cookbook. And my whole thing was like, I want to write a diabetes cookbook that doesn't look like a diabetes cookbook. I feel like you think diabetes cookbook and it's very like meal plan-ish. It's got these kind of generic photos. I don't know. And I'm, I'm not knocking other diabetes cookbooks by any means at all, but I just wanted to do something different. And I'm so thankful that they were on board with that. And so I found a photographer that I love who really I feel like made it like a piece of art more than anything. And so um, really coming at it from the concept I talk about on social media all the time of fat, fiber, and protein. Like let's look at every recipe because no recipe is off limits. And if we can look at how to add those things in, we can make it work. And so one of the biggest things when people started to get my first cookbook in that they like reading it and everything. They're like, how can you, and not everybody, but uh, some people are like, how can you call this a diabetes cookbook? You've got this recipe in here that has like 45 grams of carb. And I'm like, it's not 45 grams of carb in isolation. It's, you know, I'm, I don't know, like it's got 20 grams of protein and 10 grams of fiber as well. Like it's all about this balance. So really the first one was educating like all times of day. Cause we cover all sorts of different types of recipes uh, in that one. And then the second one 
it did. We had a couple initial PR opportunities. Like I got to go on QVC and it was just really cool. And it did so well. They kind of almost immediately were like, okay, well, like, do you want to do another one? And I'm like, if you will let me do one all about desserts, I am in like, let's do it. And so they said, yes. And that's really the entire second book, the easy diabetes desserts cookbook is all about desserts and how do we put specifically fiber and protein in there? Uh, because, and it doesn't mean you sacrifice taste. If anything, you're more satisfied because when we're adding these in, you stay fuller for longer. It's a more palatable experience. Um, and just really educating people how to make certain tweaks, um, to still enjoy all these great things. I think that was kind of the biggest revelation in my journey of learning that I don't have to look at just carbohydrates. I can look at the bigger picture. Like I did a uh -huh. post yesterday that I had an 80 gram of carb lunch, but it wasn't just 80 grams of carbs. It was right. 70 grams of protein. There was about 30 grams of fat. And what I noticed was I only had maybe a peak up to 120, and then I was cruising in the nineties. And that was like, yeah. if you had asked me a few years ago, I never would have even touched a bagel before, but now I'm like, no, I can eat that. It just, I need to make it work for me. Um, yeah. But can we kind of dive into that a little bit just to, if, if somebody hasn't heard of that kind of method or incorporating those three macronutrients, can we just talk a little bit about what that does for your blood sugar, why you take that approach? Yeah. So kind of exactly what you're saying. So we all kind of picture, I feel like we're all taught, we picture blood sugar on like, as like a roller coaster spectrum, like you're going up and down and you're up and down and we want, we want the kitty coaster. We want the flat line. Um, but that's not realistic. We're going to have waves. And so how do we minimize those waves uh, and the ups and downs and stuff? And think of it as like, if you eat a piece of white bread by itself, you're going to shoot up. If you eat a piece of fruit, like a banana by itself, you're going to shoot up. But how do we buffer that spike? How do we prevent the spike from going? We're not reducing insulin needs. We're not like minimizing medication, but we're reducing the overall spike. And we do that with fat, fiber, and protein. Those are like buffers on that, that big spike, if you will. That's what takes us from like the mega coaster to the kitty coaster. And, you know, there's also a lot of data that we talk about. Um, you've probably seen some of it where like eating the fiber and protein source first and then eating like the pasta or the bread or whatever it is can really help buffer that as well. Um, so it's like these small tweaks that, yeah, they're annoying to think about, but it, it's part of living with diabetes and still getting to have the freedom you want with food. And cause that's the other thing I think too, that's a common misconception is learning how to eat the foods that we love takes a little bit of work. It takes some forethought and maybe some planning or some trial and error. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Like that's what allows us this freedom. And I think there's a common misconception that just because it's maybe a little harder to figure that out than it is to go low carb that that's somehow the wrong thing to do. I don't know. I like, I don't know if you see that online, but I definitely get pushback on that. And it's like, well, why go through the effort? And I'm like, because I want to live my life. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Like I felt so restricted trying to do the low carb thing. And that really affected my mental health too. Like I felt not only restricted in my day to day, like I was in college when I was diagnosed. So I'm going out to friends' houses, apartment parties, you know, all the things yeah. and, you know, nonetheless eating in a cafeteria setting where you feel like everything's right in front of you, but it's all hands off, like, or it's off limits. So, yeah. but that really started to affect my mental health too. And I ended up resenting diabetes even more. So, you know, just because things take a little bit more planning now, or, you know, even just looking at different factors, asking different questions. I'm like, I am so willing to do that if it allows me to eat more and actually feel yeah. 
energized. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think this also like brings into play the the mental side of diabetes and the importance of mental health care and therapy uh, in your, it's a, it's a big mental load to bear. Um, I am excited to see that I think a lot of practitioners are incorporating that now as part of the standard of care. Whereas like when I was growing up, that was not, like it was not even on anybody's radar. Um, yeah. So. I mean, it was when I was diagnosed to an extent, they had kind of said, you know, you can take the semester, the rest of the semester off. But I was, I was a freshman in college and I had just started to meeting my friends. I was finally yeah. living like four hours away from home. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to yeah. suck it up and tough it out. Cause that's what I thought I was supposed to do. So yeah. I definitely agree. I think it's a really important component that even, you know, even if it's just on social media where people are actually talking about it and acknowledging it, that's at least a huge, huge step. Yeah. So can we kind of talk about a little bit of your, your new cookbook, um, a little bit more about the approach that you take in adding more protein, fat and fiber into your recipes. Like can you give us a little sneak peek into what that looks like? Yeah. So there's a many different ways you can do that. My go-to standard way is instead of using like traditional flour, you, I use a combination of almond flour and ground up oats, um, uh, and make, um, like it's a, it's got more of fat fiber and protein and a, generally speaking, a little bit less carbohydrate as well, and just creates a much nicer blood sugar response. And I think a more palatable dessert because the, the additional fat and protein, especially are more satiating. It keeps you fuller, uh, all those things. Um, so that's the first day we do first way we do that. The other way is we look at adding yogurt or Greek yogurt into recipes for added protein or added fat. Like that's another easy way to do that. And yogurt acts as a great binder or a wet liquid. If you need that in a batter or something, um, the other way to do it, it's very non-traditional, but adding beans in, um, fun fact, mashing up beans in a food processor with flour gives you the texture of cookie dough. And you can mask that with all sorts of flavorings or a little bit of maple syrup and stuff like that. I've actually got a great recipe in the book for like edible chocolate pecan cookie dough. That's it starts with a base of like just typical old white navy beans uh, and oats and we mash it up. Uh, and so there are just several different strategies you can utilize like that to that are maybe not things you'd think to do, but the end product is just as enjoyable, if not more enjoyable. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it's one of those like artificial desserts with the fake sweeteners and this like things that we really maybe grew up eating that weren't the best for us. Um, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Amazing. So, and I was taking a look at your website before too, and it looks like there's just so much in there. Like you, there was like a dessert for breakfast option and like there were like cakes and pies mm -hmm. and there's, there's so much, how many recipes are in there? So there's uh, eight different chapters and 60 recipes total. Uh, so we kind of went through, <clears throat> it sounds like a lot, but in the planning process, when you break it down of like, okay, here's all the eight different chapters, then you have certain types within there that you're going to do. Um, and it's a lot more doable. And I had, I had help. I had uh, fellow dietitians um, and a couple friends that were helping me test recipes and like offering input ideas. Um, there were a couple of them. I remember I got really stuck on and really frustrated. It's like, you're like, six or seven tries in and it's like, Oh my God, this won't work. Uh, and so like getting other people's input and stuff and then, um, thoroughly testing everything, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's a fun, once you get past the writing process, it's a really fun process. 
I was going to say, especially, I mean, I was just talking to my future mother-in-law the other day and I'm like, can you please write down some of your recipes for us for like, so we can incorporate them. And she's like, honey, I don't use recipes. (laughs) Like I throw them all together. So I can only imagine like actually writing things out and like, how long did that take you to actually develop 60 full recipes? So I think we had, it was this second one was a quicker timeline than the first one. I think I had from the time I signed about six months. Um, but we knew we were following the exact same format as the first book. Um, what actually took long, takes longer is the whole formatting and copy editing and like basically where the publisher goes in and picks everything apart and is like, you can't write, you need to do this. Um, but it's great though. It, I, I love that. Like the first time going through, it was a little shocking, but the second time around, I knew like, obviously I did my best, but they have so many different like editors and copy editors that come in and just make sure everything is like perfect. Uh, so yeah, I can only imagine. I feel like it's so hard writing from your experience. Like you're looking at it through your eyes, but you also have mm-hmm. to look at it through somebody else's eyes. So that's no, really tough. right. Yeah. So there's and there's like a list of like foods we didn't wanted to stay away from because they publish all over the world. Uh, and so it's in like you'll see in the book. There's metric conversions for everything. Um, we try to steer clear brand names because like, you know, not all brands are available everywhere um, as are certain types of foods. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of look at every possible person who could be reading it. Right. So are they pretty, uh, I mean, I apologize for asking this question because I haven't taken a look at the recipes themselves, but are they easy to put together? Like, are they like, as far as ingredients, it's a lot of ingredients, pretty simple. Most of them are like 10 ingredients or less. Um, you know, sometimes you get a lot of like spices or like, extracts in there that make it go up. But the goal was to be like, you know, roughly 10 ingredients or less um, using the same types of ingredients. Because while you, while the concept of doing like almond flour and oats might be new to someone, if they want to buy a bag of almond flour, they're not only going to be able to make that one recipe, they're going to be able to make 30 others in the book kind of thing. Um, And so I kind of go over those in the beginning of like the types of flours I'm using and the types of fats I'm using and the flavorings and all of this. And it's very consistent. Uh, throughout the book. I like that a lot because I'm somebody who goes on Pinterest almost every week and I'm buying yeah. all these different ingredients and then they just sit there and they go bad yeah. and it's a waste. So thank yeah. you for doing that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say this is some for, uh, for somebody who maybe, is it for a specific person living with type one diabetes, all diabetes, parents, like who is this best fit for? I think it's for anybody who's impacted by diabetes or a curiosity about balancing your blood sugars. Um, Cause we know there's lots of other health conditions that are impacted by blood sugar levels, like endometriosis and PCOS and things like that. And also, you know, energy levels, even if you have a fully functioning pancreas, rapid swings in your blood sugar are, they don't feel good. Uh, and so, but specifically, and this is kind of ties into my whole philosophy in general that people will see on like the blog and social media pages is I'm a big advocate for like, I hate the divide that exists between the type one community and the type two community there. Unfortunately, there's this notion among the type one community that it's not our fault and somehow we're better. And it drives, because I used to think that, like I used to think that when I was younger and it drives me up the wall because I'm like, at the end of the day, we have this, we got to this point differently. Yes. There's different causes um, and different things nobody asked for this. It's nobody's fault. And we're all trying to, we're all trying to keep our blood sugars in range. Like that's the end goal. We have different medications and things like that, but the general nutrition principles, they're the same. 
um, it's the medication and like the responses that will be different, but yeah, that's a big, like, you can probably hear it in my voice. I get really upset when I see that kind of line of thinking, especially happening online, because I just think it's, it's so detrimental to the diabetes community as a whole. It really is. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're talking about it and having that conversation because I actually did an episode on this with, um, uh, a type two, her name is Danielle, or sorry, Taylor Danielle. And we did a whole episode on just that. And she had kind of that mentality of she wanted to talk about her diagnosis of type two, but she felt mm-hmm. like there was so much kind of attack from the type one community of, mm-hmm. of like, well, you know, type twos reversible, all of the kind of stigmas that come around it. And I did uh-huh. too. I used to use it as a defense of, well, this yeah. isn't my fault, but it's nobody's fault. You're right. Nobody asked for that. So thank you for making that a point and, and talking about it. Um, really yeah. Important. I have a vivid memory of being in college and like sitting in like the like student union building or whatever. And they've like, I guess it was like, I think they were in a fraternity or something and they were doing a fundraiser and they walk up to like me and my group of friends with like these like flyers for the thing. And it said it was benefiting JDRF. And I, in my head, I'm like, hmm. I was like, Oh, like, and I didn't say I had diabetes and I just said, Oh, this is for the JDRF, the juvenile diabetes research foundation. And he was like, Oh yeah. The little fat kids. And I, <laughs> I am not a controversial, like, like, like I don't mind conflict, but I certainly don't seek it out. And I, when I tell you, I've never got off on somebody so hard. I was like, I was so livid. And that ever since then, I vividly remember that encounter of just like, like, why do people treat diabetes this way? And like knew that somehow I wanted like breaking that stigma to be part of my career. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And their confidence in saying that. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. When I was first diagnosed too, I was at a, a apartment party and somebody came up to me like, I heard you have diabetes, but you don't look like you have diabetes. I'm like, well, then what should it look like? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. no, I think it's important because even with type one or any type, like we should be able to eat the desserts. We shouldn't have to feel restricted. So thank you for making that conversation and, you know, bringing it more into our community because I think it is a very different approach than a lot of people are taking. Yeah. Um, I have one follow-up, one final question for you. And it's kind of something that I want to start incorporating more into these guest interviews. And okay. so the name of the podcast is Keep You 100 Radio, um, Uncensored Diabetes Conversations. So I want to ask you, what is your biggest piece of uncensored advice, whether it's around nutrition or just diabetes in general? Yeah, I guess I just, you get diagnosed with diabetes, whether it's type one or type two or pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes, whatever form it is, um, specifically here, obviously we're talking about type one and you, you can do one of two things. You can have the woe is me attitude. Uh, and like this sucks and don't get me wrong. Like we all have those moments. Like sometimes it does suck. And sometimes you just want to sit at home and cry, but you can have that approach to it, or you can think, okay, this is part of me. This happened for a reason, regardless of why you think it happened, even though it wasn't your fault. Uh, and I can use it to help more people, or I can use it to be a better person, or I can use it to be more focused on X, Y, Z. Um, that second approach will open up your mind and your perspective and bring so much more joy than just sitting around moping about the fact that you have diabetes. And I'm not negating, like, especially the initial shock of a diagnosis, or we all go through burnout, like it happens. But I think I always kind of try to give a little bit of tough love of we have a choice. And if that choice is hard, 
there are mental health care professionals ready and willing to help us get there. But really, I had to reframe myself in my early 20s of like, this is this is part of my life. And I can look at it as a blessing to be able to go out into the world and help other people. Or I can just sit here and whine about it. And so I don't know, sometimes that seems like a little harsh, but that's just kind of what I've had to to tell myself. No, I, I fully agree. And it's, I think no matter how long you kind of push that thought back or avoid it, it always comes around. Like mm-hmm. when I was diagnosed, I was like, there's no way there's a good reason for this. And then four years later, I was diagnosed with Crohn's. So I was like, there's no way there's a good reason for this. And, you know, there was actually was because I learned how to take care of my body. I learned how to take more of that holistic approach of looking at, you know, everything as culmination of how I treat my body and my health. And now I get to support other people with that too. So I, yeah. I definitely agree with that. You know, I think yeah. at some point taking that approach is so worth it. And I think too, once we realize that for ourselves, there are so many people like what, what you're doing here with the the podcast, like you you don't even know how many people see your positive attitude and it turns them around. And so I think it's, I think about that sometimes too, about like, even when you think nobody's watching or nobody's listening, somebody is. They always are. And it gives them, yeah. gives them that permission slip of, okay, I can live my life this way too. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Can we just wrap up by um, telling everybody where they can find you, how they can interact with you, where they can find your, your cookbooks, uh, just, anything that you want to share? Yeah. So you can head over to milkandhoneynutrition.com. That's my blog. You'll find all sorts of free resources there. Um, I also have, if you go to the shop tab, you can look at both of my cookbooks available at almost any retailer, Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, all the places. Uh, Both of them are, you can find me on Instagram at milkin, the letter in, honey nutrition. And then I'm on TikTok as diabetes nutritionist. Amazing. I will put all of your links in the show notes so that everybody can easily find you. But thank you so much for coming on. This was a really great conversation. And I think this is a big eye opener. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much for having me.